Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Deanna Zanatos. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital in the University of Louisville. I am also one of the co-producers of the PCICS podcast. Today, we bring to you an exciting collaboration between the Pediatrica Intensiva podcast with host Dr. Greg Kelly and the PDECMO Education Committee webinar series with host Dr. Elise Zivik. This podcast is actually the audio from a joint webinar between our three organizations on pediatric ECMO challenges. As we get into the podcast, the hosts and panelists will introduce themselves. Welcome, everybody, to this very special joint collaboration between the Pediatrica Intensiva podcast and the PCICS podcast and PDECMO, the Education Committee of PDECMO. We are going to be talking through a couple of cases and just kind of running through some clinical scenarios that may or may not be something that you you all have encountered and kind of hearing from experts really across the world, which is very exciting to have kind of an international panel and hear how things are done the same or different in other places. First, I'd like to get started by having our hosts introduce themselves. For those that don't know me, my name is Elisa Vick. I'm one of the pediatric intensivists in Charleston, South Carolina in the United States. And, and help out with the uh, PDECMO group that is through Policy and Elso. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am Deanna Zanatos. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky in the U.S. And I am one of the co-executive producers of the PCICS podcast. So I'm really excited to be able to be a part of this collaboration. Hi, my name is Greg Kelly. I'm a Pediatric Cardiac Intensivist from Westmead Children's Hospital in Sydney, Australia, and I'm part of the Pediatric or Intensiver team with Peter as well. Right. So the three of us are going to be hosts and we're going to ask the questions. And then now we have our panelists so, um, that I'd like to introduce. Um, Dr. Alexander, would you like to go first? Of course. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be doing this all together. Um, my name is Peter Alexander. I'm a pediatric cardiologist and intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm the cardiac ECMO director here. Um, and I've been here for nearly a decade and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be talking to you all. Dr. Williams. Hi, I'm Ariane Williams. I'm pediatric intensivist uh, in Brussels. I'm uh, working in a mixed pediatric and cardiac intensive care unit. And I'm very honored to participate to the uh, this uh, meeting. Dr. Osmond. Hi, I'm Caroline Osmond. I'm a pediatric intensivist at Duke University and the medical director for our neonatal and pediatric ECMO program. And I uh, have been at Duke my entire career and I'm super excited about this panel. I love this this group of, of panelists. So this is going to be a fun discussion. And Dr. Furlong Dillard. Hi, I'm Jamie Furlong Dillard. I am one of the pediatric intensivists and cardiac intensivists um, with uh, Deanna in Norton Children's in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we are the um, kind of co-ECMO directors here of the ICU, and I also get to work in multiple venues with um, Dr. Osmond and Dr. Alexander as um, in multiple capacities, and this is such an exciting opportunity to be able to speak with you guys today. Elise, I probably should add, because Peter might kill me otherwise, that I'm the co, uh, co-chair of PDECMO. I should have put that out there, too. <laughs> Peter's like, why did you not say that? <laughs> it's important. It is important. That's true. This is a, this is a, a co-hosting group. So I uh, took over this year for Peter as one of the co-chairs of PDECMO. Well, we're so grateful to all of you guys for joining us for uh, for this panel. And so I think we should just dive right in. Our first case is going to be presented by Craig. 
Sounds good. So, our first patient is a two-month-old male with a history of co-arc repair in the first week of life. Um, he got went through that pretty well, got home. He's been home for a month, but now, of course, he's got RSV from the older sibling from daycare. Comes in, gets progressively worse, is eventually fails non-invasive, is intubated, and the ventilator settings keep increasing. He winds up on 100% FiO2 with high PEEP, and despite that, still only saturating at 85%. You try on nitric, doesn't do much. He has an echo showing normal biventricular function, no residual structural defects, no residual coarc. Gas shows uh, quite a severe respiratory acidosis, pH 7.1, CO2 72, and PaO2 50, and the oxygenation index is only 36. You try all of the things, so recruitment maneuvers, paralysis, deep sedation, proning, HFOV, and eventually decide that um, he's on damaging levels of respiratory support and needs to go on ECMO. Uh, you call your surgeon, who says that due to cannula availability and technical issues, um, she doesn't think she'll be able to put her on VV, and so eventually um, she's cannulated to VA ECMO with an 8 French arterial cannula and a 10 French venous cannula um, on the right side of the neck, so right carotid and IJ. He stabilizes after that. Uh, SATs improve, and you manage to wean your ventilator settings to rest settings. Uh, we actually were talking about this before everyone came on, the, the technical issues of, of VA versus VV. So I might throw this to Caroline initially first. So it's often pretty challenging when we have small patients and technical difficulties or cannula availability with, with VV cannula. So I'd just like to ask you how you think about the relative risks and benefits of, of VA and, and VV ECMO in small infants and neonates and what uh, technical considerations you're considering. We actually had this uh, situation come up recently in our unit because we've transitioned over from using cardiothoracic surgery to general surgery in the PICU. We had we, we had all been under cardiothoracic surgery until recently, and so we have been navigating VV in the smaller babies with our general surgeons more recently. And you know, obviously, when we go VA in a scenario where we could use VV, it's it's a bit of a bummer because. You know, I know there will be increased risk of um, stroke and neurologic injury and potentially head bleeds going uh, VA. And this is even more difficult, I think, in the neonatal population where hemostasis, developmental hemostasis plays into things. And so, you know, you worry about the head bleeds. And then obviously with the smaller cannulas, you worry about the cannulas clotting. And so balancing that anticoagulation can be difficult. Obviously not specific to neonates, but you're going to sacrifice the carotid and you may have difficulty with differential saturations depending on the cardiac function. But I think there's some real risk with the bicable cannulas as well. We've always used the Avalon and certainly our surgeons, especially with the smallest babies, worry about um, perforation and uh, appropriate placement at the bedside. We do everything under echo guidance or, or chest x-ray, repeated serial chest x-ray guidance, you know, in a scenario where the surgeon is uncomfortable, we often will opt to go VA over, over VV. Um, as the babies get a little bit bigger, you know, kind of in the 3.5 to 4 kilo range, I think most of the time we all can agree to to try for VV in, in those kids. So that's kind of how we approach approach it at Duke. But again, we're kind of a, a morphing program at this point. VV with a double lumen cannula? Yes, with a, a dual lumen Avalon is what we've used so far. We have the Crescents at Duke. We have not used them yet for a couple of reasons that I think may come up in, in the later conversation, but we we may move towards that. We're going to get some education on that moving, you know, moving forward here. Yeah. And I'd be interested in what the other panelists say about this, because this is what we we're talking about just before everyone came on of, of the availability of dual lumen VV cannulae. And as far as 
I was aware there's there's two currently available, which are the Crescent and the Avalon, both in a 13 French and then go up in sizes. But just be interested in what people are doing at, at other centres, who's got them, what um, patient selection, that sort of thing. I'm I'm working in Europe and uh, although there's FDA appro- approval for the Crescent in the United States, there's still no EU uh, app- approval for the Crescent cannula in Europe. And it's the same situation at, uh, at our center, what... Caroline is saying because you you have to balance the problem of VA ECMO in small children. We have a lot of small children referred to our center with uh, meconium aspiration syndrome. They are pulmonary very ill, but they have a, a good prognosis. And so the, we still see problems with VA ECMO in neonates. More We see more uh, neurological uh, injury and uh, bleeding or uh, thrombosis. So it's it's a balance between what you choose. So we still choose, and and I understand it's an issue because although you can put the cannula in a good position, when you are changing your respiratory conditions, you have uh, by moving the lungs you have displacement of the cannula, and so it's still an issue. So. 30% of the time, you you have to reposition your cannula when you use the Avalon cannula. So it's always a, a balance between uh, the complications of VA ECMO or VV with the Avalon. But we, we still not have the crescent cannula in, in Europe. But at the last uh, Euro ELSO Congress, I saw that there are still problems in position with the crescent cannula. So we uh, have used, actually, in the past three years, 15 crescent cannulas. So we have one of the highest uses in our center. Um, and I only know that specifically because we talked to Dr. Gray, who has a lot of experience in uh, Riley Children's. And when we had um, one event where I'll tell you about in a second that happened, we had him come speak to us specifically about everything you guys are discussing with the lo- the location in the chest. So there's the Crescent RA cannulas, which are in the size 13, 13, 15, and 17. And um, then greater than that, you have the the Crescent dual lumen cannulas as well that you can use outside of the neonates. So they're 13, 15, and 19, excuse me, for the RAs. Um, and so the difference, of course, is where it sits in the chest, where in the right atrium versus kind of past the valve and deeper into the hepatic system. And Dr. Gray specifically, you know, does stress that the cannula placement, whereas I personally think we have a lot better experience with the crescents than we do the Avalons, as far as how finicky the trajectory ports are and the movement inside the chest, we still have had some patients we've had to reposition them. And, and one of them that actually did have a tamponade type effect. Uh, and so, you know, there are not of course, nothing we do in ECMO is risk, you know, without risk by all means. But I do think the Crescents have given us a lot of um, ability to use them and be able to place these small patients on VV in the neonatal, you know, CDH groups, et cetera. And then a lot of our bronchiolytic respiratory in the PICU patient population. The general surgeons, of course, um, have a pretty standard protocol with us now where we're using them. And we actually have a transportable kind of C-arm flora where if they're a larger patient and we put them on VV with the crescents, we can do the fluoro in the rooms. Um, but of course, and especially if you're unstable and like on an oscillator beforehand, et cetera. Um, but they prefer if we can to do it in the OR for the purposes of using fluoroscopy. But we have had several patients where we've just done echo guidance as well. It has a really good radiography clues. And so paying really close attention on x-rays and has your patient's fluid volume shifts, et cetera, you have to pay attention to how they change and move. And then one of the other things we learned with Dr. Gray was 
if you have to convert it, a VV patient to VA, um, the crescent cannula, and this was from his words and from our experience in one of our patients, you can't run it as a pure drainage cannula. You will have to keep a return and a drainage port and then add another arterial cannula. So, so that's some of the experiences we've had here. But overall, I think we've been really pleased with the use of the crescent cannulas as an option for these small neonates. One of the reasons we haven't moved to the crescent is we we also talked to Dr. Gray at Riley a good bit. Is my understanding is that the patients need to be pretty well sedated because of the migration that this cannula has. And we are a, a light sedation program. Even with the neonates, we find that them letting them move around and such decreases um, edema and you know helps us better assess their neurologic status. And so that's one of the reasons I have been a little reticent to move towards the crescent too. So something just to keep in mind as you're considering it. There's another question in the chat. I'm sure that you guys saw it as well about dual site BV ECMO. Why aren't we talking about that? You can, uh, you should talk about it, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do it in the babies. When do you do it? Yeah. What size would you consider it? Practically, we consider it usually around puberty, potentially a little bit younger, depending on the size of the patient. But our protocol actually says 20 kilos. I think at times we don't do it at 20 kilos. It's more towards like 30, between 30 and 40. That's exactly what we do is closer to 40. Even though um, where I trained, they did it in the Utah, they did a lot smaller patients closer to 20. But here the surgeons are much more comfortable with bigger vessels. But the UK guys are obviously doing it in the smaller babies. I think it's certainly worth discussing, particularly if the cannula issues aren't going to go away with the current technology, because I think that a lot of us thought when the origin disappeared and the Avalon wasn't going to fit the bill, that maybe the next line of tech might actually answer the question of how we deliver VV ECMO to the neonatal group. And if the tech isn't going to meet what we think are technical requirements, then, uh, then I don't know, maybe it would be good. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, and a couple of people are throwing questions in the chat, and I appreciate some of you guys answering that, some of those questions. So moving on a little bit in this case, one of the concerns from VA ECMO when you're on for primary respiratory failure is coronary oxygenation. When the heart is ejecting, the coronaries are generally receiving blood that is returning directly from the lungs to the left side of the heart and can often be desaturated. If your primary cause, of course, is respiratory failure. Do you guys in y'all's institutions have a practice for a minimum FiO2, or is there a way that you manage the sort of like differential SATs that you may see from you know healthy hearts that are ejecting in VA ECMO um, on these patients? How about Caroline? You want to go first? Sure. <laughs> uh, we uh, don't have a set minimum in our protocol, but I would say we stop, you know, uh, we, we stop winning our FiO2 anywhere between 40 and 50% to try to minimize that. And then we always try to put a right uh, radial art line in, or at least have a sat probe on the, on the right arm if we can't get uh, a radial art line. And then we've also moved away, especially in some of our more severe ARDS patients, we've moved away from total rest settings and kids who have open lungs going on to ECMO. And we try to maintain uh, open lungs with non-toxic ventilator settings, if at all possible. And for the babies, for us, we use the jet ventilator, which I recognize is a little bit different from other centers, but we used to take them off the jet ventilator when we put them on ECMO. And now we leave them and try to keep the lungs open to try to minimize some of that um, more significant hypoxia. Those are the main strategies that we use. We do a similar here. I know some people in the chat were also saying it around 40%. We try to, we know less than 40% for that coronary perfusion. And the sicker the lungs, sometimes we'll try to even maybe go a little higher in the very beginning, the first 24 to 48 hours, but that's not a set standard. 
I wanted to just touch on the issue that you said about differential sats, you know, so with um, femoral cannulations, of course, we can see the typical, you know, north, south, and as the cardiac ejection in- increases, then the you're going to have a, a worsening differential saturation from your upper and lower extremities. But um, occasionally with really good cardiac function, you can even see it, of course, with neonates with neck cannulations or, or as well. And Elise and I actually were talking recently about a case that she had um, that was really, it just stood out in my head. I wanted to bring it up is that sometimes you'll have differential sats in the beginning and you're kind of getting used to them and then you'll come in and the sats are normal and everywhere and you you've had maybe a head one of the ear or the head pulse socks with the hand and the feet and they've all been different or a little bit different and then now all of a sudden everything's the same at 98% and you're like great my ECMO is working better and what you've missed maybe is potentially that your cardiac function is actually what has changed and so that really um one of the things that of course can happen on VV is the need for VA <laughs> so I just wanted to mention that because I thought it was a really interesting way to make sure we don't forget when we're taking care of these patients that sometimes the good is the bad. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks everybody. Um, I have one more question on this case and then we will just go ahead and move on to the next case because we have some interesting topics to talk about. So in patients with primary cardiac failure as the reason for VA ECMO, we all have a pretty standard weaning process. I think most people kind of wean the flows down, see how the heart does with less support. But when you have these patients who are on VA ECMO, but they went on for primary respiratory failure and not cardiac failure, I'd like to hear how you may change your weaning strategies and what that might look like. Ariane, would, would you like to start with that one? Yes, thank you for the question. Uh, so uh, when we we are trying to wean uh, these patients uh, with respiratory problem on uh, VA ECMO, we are first putting um, acceptable uh, respiratory settings on the ventilator. And then uh, we try uh, to, to decrease flow because you can, uh, it's difficult to, to it's it's easier to win respiratory patients on VV ECMO than on uh, VA ECMO. And in small children, you still have the problem that you have a little bit of flow that is uh, oxygenated and uh, ventilated by the oxygenator. And so it's sometimes difficult to, to know if you can win the patient. We have a strategy when at the moment we are um, just clamping the cannulas and uh, trying to see if the patients can be weaned of uh, of ECMO by 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 uh, stopping the ECMO clamping the cannulas and 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 try to see what the patient patient is doing so that's our uh, winning strategy on VA ECMO for respiratory patients Jamie or Caroline anything different you'd like to add to that if not we can move on to our next case no we do a, we have a similar process yeah, similar. We don't always necessarily, you know, feel the need to do a clamp trial in RBV patients if the data is informative enough that you have low sweep, low FO2, and acceptable vent settings to come off. And especially in the setting of a circuit that might have more clot, and so a clamp trial could be more harm. 
All right. So our next case, we have a six-year-old female. She was previously healthy. She had four days of URI symptoms, fever, cough, malaise. Her parents thought she became a little bit sicker, wasn't as responsive at home. So they brought her to the emergency department. Upon arrival, she was found to be in shock, poor perfusion, tachycardia, hypotension. She was intubated, sedated, and given volume resuscitation and started on vasopressors. Her labs were significant for influenza, an elevated lactic acid level, elevated troponin, and an elevated B-type natriuretic peptide. The echo demonstrated a structurally normal heart with severely depressed biventricular function, and um, she continued to do poorly um, and wasn't responding to the resuscitation measures, so the decision was made to place her on VA ECMO. She was cannulated without incident with a 19 French cannula in the right IJ and a 15 French cannula in the right common carotid. After she was cannulated, her vasopressor medications were weaned and the vent settings were adjusted. So at around six hours after going on to ECMO, the art line pulse pressure became very narrow, 65 over 62, and her PaO2 rose and it was almost equal to the post-oxygenator PaO2. So I wanted to kind of ask the, the panelists what this finding might indicate and what would be the next steps to kind of diagnose this change in clinical status. And PETA, would you like to start with this one? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So it sounds like this patient has a presentation and a clinical kind of progress that's consistent with something like a myocarditis. Um, and they've obviously presented with an acute severe form of that and they've been cannulated to peripheral VA ECMO. The changes that you're talking about over the first six hours are likely, and I'm, I'm just going to spell this out because as you, you, as you read through it, it was so beautifully described, are likely due to the underlying left-sided ventricular failure progressing in the context of increased afterload from the VA ECMO. Because while we think about VA ECMO contributing and, and basically um, providing the cardiac out for the, patient, for the patient, that's for all of the end organs. But for the heart, for the left ventricle in particular, the VA ECMO support is actually increasing afterload on the already sick left ventricle. And so at the point where the pulse pressure is falling and the PaO2 in the aorta is rising, that's likely because the heart itself has stopped ejecting and contributing slightly deoxygenated blood that's come through the lungs rather than through the oxygenator to the circulation. And um, in that context, I think that in many centres, it would probably be rational to confirm that hypothesis or that clinical suspicion with an echo but I think that the relative urgency of the situation is to move to some sort of intervention to decompress the left side of the heart. And in our centre, that would be with a catheter-based balloon atrial septostomy as first pass to see if we could decompress back to whatever the central venous pressure was. Peter, can you explain just for everyone a little bit more what the, what the rationale of decompressing the left side is? So I think it's really interesting because every time we talk about this at my centre, we talk about how there's not good evidence for decompressing the left side. And it's fascinating to me because about six or seven years ago, I was at an ELSO meeting and the adult interventionists and the adult uh, 
intensive care physicians had started doing more VA ECMO in cardiac patients. And I can remember Dan Hurst standing up and saying, you know, we don't decompress the left side of the heart at all. What are you talking about? It's totally fine. Plenty of them get better and go home. But now they're doing randomized control trials of decompressing or not in adult populations because they've got the patient populations to do the sort of investigations that we haven't really ever had. Um, but the construct is that actually, if the heart's not ejecting, then the end diastolic pressure of the left side is likely to go up just with the return of circulation from pulmonary blood flow and pulmonary vessels. And with that, the increasing and diastolic pressure is going to overall reduce the perfusion pressure of the coronary arteries, which obviously come back out at that end diastolic pressure uh, return uh, at atrial pressure. And so uh, in order to perfuse a myocardium, you need, need to decompress the heart so that the myocardium is better perfused. You also decrease wall stress and tension on the myocardium. So overall, the myocardium is better perfused and the heart can generally be what we call rested, which should actually promote early recovery. And although there's not good evidence for that in the pediatric population that we look after, there are a number of retrospective studies. And the largest multicenter one of those does show a, a decreased time on ECMO for those patients who are decompressed early. Um, and so in our centre, it's certainly something that we do. Anecdotally, uh, just after I arrived here in Boston, while I was still a fellow, I think, a, a senior fellow here, Jim Locke, who was the chief of cardiology, showed us all a patient who'd been cannulated under very similar circumstances to this overnight. And in the wee small hours of the morning, the team had made a very generous decision not to call the whole cath lab in at two o'clock in the morning when it seemed like 7.30 was going to be fine to decompress the left side of the heart for this patient. And he made us all watch the angios where although the patient had a pulse pressure that I would have previously thought suggested that the left side of the heart was decompressing by ejection, the angios of uh, contrast flowing into the PAs and just staying still uh, will never be lost on me. And so although we don't have good evidence for a lot, for any of the practice that we currently use on ECMO, enough anecdotal evidence for me that we certainly do move early to left-sided decompression. I'm interested in what the other panelists do as well, but I just want to drill down, um, Peter, for one final question. So the ones I find tricky, what if the aortic valve is opening sometimes, like every few beats or when the blood pressure gets no. a bit lower, but not reliably? And what if the aortic valve isn't opening, but someone does an echo and says, oh, the LV is not distended. It's okay. Relax. Back away. Back away. What do you do? No, we decompress anyway. And actually, I'm just as concerned if the LV is opening, if the aortic valve is opening sometimes as if it's not opening at all. We decompress because we've been caught. And at the point where the patient's got pulmonary hemorrhage, you've now converted what could be single organ failure, just the heart, into multi-organ failure because now you've got to recover the affected lungs as well, at the same time or beyond the time that the affected heart is going to recover. Um, and so I do try very hard to prevent multi-organ failure in the patients by uh, decompressing. So uh, I, I, like not opening every beat, I'd still decompress. I, I'm happy if other people have got different practice, obviously. Mm. I, I think it's fascinating to explore differences in practice and how you land at these things. But, but in our practice, we would decompress. And we know that it's very difficult to tell echocardiographically what the left-sided pressures in the heart are. And so not being very distended on the left side 
great. That means that we haven't lost the fight already. Like, let's go and sort this thing out before that happens to potentially promote recovery. Let's um, let's see what people do in the other centres as well. I'm super interested. But just I, to clarify, you, the only reason you wouldn't decompress is if the patient's reliably got native aortic valve ejection. No, more than that. If they had a pulse pressure that was really generous and uh, and then I'm wondering whether I've got the right diagnosis, whether this patient actually <laughs> has real myocarditis. And I'd watch that and I'd tell the team beside like that they needed to watch that and not wean the vasoactives because the other thing that you see in these patients is that the first echo is like, oh, you've decompressed them or you're supporting them with ECMO and all of a sudden everything looks better. And, and so people wean off all of the vasoactives and then the heart stops ejecting. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, as was described in this uh, case vignette. Um, yep. So I, I would certainly make sure people know that if they're not going to decompress the left side, you do need to continue with some form of inotropy targeted potentially to pulse pressure. One more final question to Peter, and then I want to open it up to everybody else. But I, I agree with you, Peter. I think you have the right approach. I've seen other approaches, but I think this is the right approach. Um, but my question is really about the timing, because you were talking about, you know, between 2 a.m. and 7 a.m. being too much time. So it's a pretty quick decision after you get on, you see that, you know, you're on, you have pretty clear evidence of cardiac failure, need to go ahead and yeah, no, thank you for picking me up on that. I think that actually different patients are different, right? Because the degree of LV failure is what really precipitates that timing. So for the patient who is cannulated at 2 o'clock in the morning under eCPR circumstances, the first chest X-ray was a whiteout, complete whiteout. So that actually should have been enough to trigger um, a, an intention to start moving things forward. Um, whereas actually there's plenty of patients that we cannulate under not ECPR conditions, who actually continue to have some ejection through the cannulation process and beyond, who we can support with some inotropy and uh, vasopressor to be able to continue to open that aortic valve and, and have a pulse pressure that's a quarter to a third of the systolic pressure that suggests that actually there is reasonable cardiac output. And so those are probably the two different ends of the spectrum, right? On one end of the spectrum, an urgent intervention to try and relieve pressure on the lungs and stop the multi-organ failure. And on the other side, a kind of targeted approach with interprofessional discussion about timing and indeed whether or not we need to move forward. Because it's possible that that patient with a pulse pressure that's you know, a, th a third to a half um, systemic pressure might actually have just been decompressed enough by taking away some of the right atrial flow through the lungs uh, to be able to get through without uh, decompression. But the chest x-ray on the two o'clock in the morning cannulated patient at 2.30 in the morning clearly showed that that patient was in extremis and needed decompression. Ariane, Jamie, or Caroline, would you all handle this situation any differently at your centers? No, we are also decompressing early um, if we have uh, white lungs or of it, or if the aortic valve is not opening, we are also decompressing. And I have I, I was working in a in a, in a center where where we had a lot of contacts with the, the adult intensive care unit, and they use a lot of impella in such a situation. We are still going to the cat lab 
uh, with uh, children. But in adolescent patients, I think there's maybe a, some place for to use the impella in this situation. And there's a lot of uh, experience in adult patients to fix the problem of, of uh, aortic valve that is not opening. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as well. Like in a lot of the adult literature right now, they're calling it like the ECPELA concept, you know, yeah. and there, you know, it comes at the risk of homolysis sometimes, but I think it's a really neat concept that you could try to do that because it's not as easy to just go in the cath lab and, de- and go across the septum in the adult patients. The mm-hmm. um, So this could be a better option for them. In the chat, someone mentioned um, the exact same thing I was thinking of, which is kind of that spending on your institution, the PICU or the cardiac ICU patient, where it's the kind of like our case vignette with the cardiac dysfunction from a myocarditis or a cardiomyopathy that was undiagnosed and they come in and they're sick urgently and put on and you know that they're in some form of a septic shock versus cardiac dysfunction and you're not exactly sure where they're going to shake out. And so I think in these kind of patients, personally, we don't go, you know, just like in the cardiac ICU where we would more quickly call the cath doctors and try to get this on the books to happen like we you know within the first couple of hours just like Peter talked about and those patients i think watching for serial echoes before you have clinical changes is what's key and what's important because by the time you have clinical changes just like Peter said you're going from single organ dysfunction to multi organ dysfunction but if you can find that if you can continuously watch and not just the immediate post cannulation cannula confirmation and making sure everything looks okay on that first initial x-ray and imaging, but looking six hours later, looking 12 hours later and trying to catch it before you have clinical symptoms, I think is one of the key things that we could take away and what we try to pay attention to. I think the um, ECPELA discussion is really interesting. We um, have used it a couple of times in more acute decompensated heart failure in a cardiomyopathy patient rather than the myocarditis patients. Um, And depending on the type of patient and the size of the device, we've deliberately chosen in the larger patients with the larger device to wean them off ECMO and leave them supported with the impeller. Whereas if you use the smaller device just for offloading the left ventricle, then you don't have that option. The limitation is the the French sizes of the devices that you need to use. And so a six-year-old is probably even a little small for the CP, which is the smaller version. And and from what we've seen, the homolysis is worse with the smaller devices, whereas the largest optimized cardiac devices for the adults is a beautiful device. And we've, we've left patients on that for six weeks waiting for a heart transplant. I did talk to our team and I used to work in the cardiac unit. I think we're a little slower than the Boston team is to go to decompression, but are moving towards doing that faster. And we have started using the Impella as well. It's very interesting to hear what different people's approaches with, you know, technical, surgical expertise, different opinions. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about getting an international group like this together is just realizing all the different ways to do things. Elise, should we move on to the final question? I just saw we've got 20 minutes left. Yeah. Before we do that really quickly, there was one question in the chat that I got a chance to address. And that was, how do you manage the ventilator settings on patients that are on for primary cardiac uh, issues, do you try to leave the lungs open or do you sort of do more rest type settings? So maybe if Arian, I don't know if you want to take that one first really quick. Yes. So our strategy is to keep the lungs open because it's, we think it's important and we are scary that 
if you have issues with the with the lungs, it postpones the, the weaning of the ECMO. So our strategy is to keep the lungs open and to be very aggressive with atelectasis of problems um, or uh, plugging in the lungs. So that's what we are doing uh, at uh, or at my center. We do the same. We tend to keep the lungs open as well. And because the pathology isn't primarily pulmonary, I've always felt okay about doing that rather than um, moving on to rest settings the way you would if you had a pulmonary process leading to ECMO. I've always found that if we don't stay on top of it initially and have to play catch up, then we have to use things like potentially like bivent or higher pressure settings to re-recruit them just to get off of ECMO. And mm. the last thing any surgeon wants is for you to only be on ECMO because of your lungs. <laughs> We'd like to take a moment to recognize the sponsor of this episode of the PCICS podcast, Cincinnati Children's Heart Institute. Cincinnati Children's Heart Institute was formed in 2008 with the mission to transform pediatric heart disease through the integration of clinical care, molecular cardiovascular research, and education. In 2020, U.S. News & World Report ranked Cincinnati Children's as one of the top programs in the nation for pediatric cardiology. The Heart Institute team has pioneered many advances in pediatric cardiology, including a first-in-nation ventricular assist device and a Duchenne muscular dystrophy patient. Numerous transcatheter intervention therapies, echocardiography of complex cardiac malformations, and the evaluation of cardiac disease during exercise stress. As one of the largest pediatric cardiology programs in the nation, the world-renowned team at the Heart Institute at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center has achieved outcomes that rival or surpass those at other top centers for even the most challenging cases. So we'll move on to our last case. This is a 12-year-old who is 45 kilos. He has no significant past medical history, and he presents to your hospital with intermittent fevers, fatigue, um, and bruising for about three weeks. He developed some increased work of breathing, and that's why he was brought into the ED. And upon evaluation, he's found to have a white blood cell count of 150,000, a hemoglobin count of 8.2, and a platelet count of 89,000, which is concerning for a leukemic process. He has um, hypoxemia and is required intubation um, and uh, mechanical ventilation. And his uh, chest x-ray is consistent with uh, bilateral parenchymal disease. And despite your aggressive respiratory support, his hypoxemia worsens, and he consistently has an oxygenation index that's above 40 and develops uh, signs of poor tissue oxygenation with a rising lactic acid level. Um, So the decision is made to cannulate him onto VB ECMO, which is completed without incident. He is cannulated with a 26 French jugular dual dual lumen cannula and run on a centrifugal pump. Uh, His ventilator settings in this institution, they're still doing rest settings. So his ventilator settings are a peak inspiratory pressure of 20, a peep of 10, a rate of 10, and a a FiO2 set at 30%. He is on an ECMO blood flow of about 4,500 milliliters per minute with uh, RPMs of around 3,500 RPMs, 100% uh, circuit FiO2, and five liters per minute of sweep flow. And his ECMO settings are titrated to keep his saturations of greater than 85% and a pH uh, 7.3 to 7.45. He does well until about two days in to his ECMO run when he suddenly develops more progressive hypoxemia, patient saturations dropping into the 72% range. And at that time, his mixed venous saturations actually dropped to 52%. So 
really our first question has to do with what is your differential for hypoxemia and, and in ECMO during a situation like this? Uh, and what steps would you take to correct the hypoxemia? Uh, Jamie, do you want to start with that one? Sure. I'd love to because there's so much to say. So if I go first, I get to say. (laughs) (laughs) So I think um, in general, the way I think about hypoxemia on ECMO, I I think of especially VV specifically, but I have this kind of algorithm in my head every time of whether I look at, is there a flow issue or not a flow issue? And if there's not a flow issue, does it a preload, afterload patient, cannula problem, et cetera? I'm sure most of us, you know, kind of go through that same algorithm in our head, but if there is a flow issue, so is there a venous obstruction problem, whether you get an x-ray, is there a pneumothorax obstruction to flow in the chest wall itself, or is there a clot in your cannulas that you're having a something that's, you know, on the front end or the back end of this. So if it's um, afterload SVR issues, did we, you know, recently we did a simulation here actually last week where we purposely like had them on higher dose pressors and had to have the the fellow come up with the fact that everything had improved after going on ECMO and now you have to wean the afterload or you can't flow effectively, et cetera. Um, and all, you know, not enough flow, of course, can lead to hypoxemia, especially for the reason you went on in the first place. But then um, if there isn't a flow issue, it gets to be um, a little bit more difficult because you can try to keep cranking up on your flows and try to see if that is within itself is the problem. So if there's a recirculation issue, of course, you can maybe the answer is actually to go down on your flows instead of up. And so it's often sometimes counterintuitive to what you might initially try to do. Uh, and so or is it does it come down to is there a flow issue relate relative to the patient's native cardiac output? And so is your problem recirculation or is it maybe that their increased metabolic demand, they have worsening lung disease, fluid overload, sepsis, shivering, et cetera. And so my first approach would be, you know, in these settings, sedation, paralytic, check the hemoglobin. That's a whole nother conversation. Where do we want the hemoglobin on ECMO? And then of course, um, after all of that, is it simply that you can't support the patient without more venous drainage? Do you have to think about a second cannula? Do you have to think about what you do next. And then I think one of the biggest things is that sometimes we have to just tolerate what we have. And so if it's not possible to add a second cannula or you do, like during COVID specifically, we would have some very large obese males and females that needed the ECMO. I'm sure all of us experienced this. And sometimes no matter how much you tried to flow, it simply was difficult and you had to accept not perfect. And so in that case, you would want to look at the patient's end organ. So you look at their renal perfusion and how much urine are they making? You look at the nears, are they making lactate? And so is this an issue with can we accept the fact that there have lower stats and is that enough? Now, I would say in the case vignette of you in the 70s, we probably would all agree that might not be enough, but that's just the approach I take. Yeah. And you've um, you've actually started to answer the next question, which is great, but maybe ask the other panelists as well, like yeah, in VV ECMO, when do you consider that the support is inadequate? And Jamie's, you know, very eloquently talked about all the the ways that you can troubleshoot things. But when do you when do you consider in your center that the VV support is inadequate and that we might need to do something different? Maybe start with you, Ariane. We do the same as Jamie. Um, we are looking at end organ uh, function, and uh, you know, we sometimes we accept lower saturations if uh, the uh, the patient is still. Peeing, uh, the lactate uh, is the, uh, remains low. Sometimes you have to paralyze him to give more sedation because we tried, try to not 
sedate too deeply or patients uh, on ECMO, and that's sometimes an issue. And then you 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 have to be aware of uh, sepsis because in sepsis you have increased cardiac output, and this disbalance can be a cause of uh, hypoxemia. So you you first need to understand why you have hypoxemia on ECMO before you can have a strategy. And in some patients with sepsis or high metabolic demand, we use beta blockers with a good uh, effect on uh, saturation on ECMO. So that's our strategy. But I, I think it's very important to understand why your patient has low saturation and to have a good differential diagnosis of uh, the problem. And then you can uh, fix it in one, uh, in one patient with very low saturation and with, with also increase in lactate. We went on a VVA ECMO to fix it and to support it. It was a patient with very uh, bad uh, respiratory condition who was further deteriorating on ECMO. But we didn't do, I did it once or two times, I think in two patients, but that's our strategy uh, in this uh, situation. One question that always comes up, I feel like when we have this issue is the addition of extra drainage cannulas. And I think (laughs) maybe sort of mentioned it, but... I'm wondering, is anyone doing like cephalad drains or at what point do you think about adding that extra drainage cannula? We don't. If we can get, you know, at least 60 to 70% cardiac output in flow with the initial cannula, we don't add anything extra. They have done that in our adult population and, and our ECMO program is combined um, with our adult program. And so we have the benefit of, of hearing some of their stories and they have not found that to be very useful. So we we don't add. Does anyone have a lot of experience with ever, you know, adding more than one oxygenator or even running like peripheral circuits in the extreme hypoxic patients, especially during the COVID era? Mm-hmm. No, I have no experience with uh, multiple oxygenation. And we use the cardio help, which has the oxygenator as part of it. So I I guess we could put another one in, but no, we've not done that either. No, I've only seen it in case report form. One thing that we didn't mention that I think is is rarely the cause of this, but something to investigate is just, you know, making sure you don't have oxygenator failure and taking a pre and post membrane gas. And that's a uncommon. I mean, I think, I think the oxygenators are so good these days. It's a really uncommon scenario, but we we just had one that was a sickle cell kid. And I think because of the sickled red cells that it was more prone to failing. And so it's something I don't think about it as much anymore, but still, still a potential reason. Jamie sort of touched on this, but looking at what are the optimal SATs in someone on VB ECMO. And I I think, is there good data for a specific number or is your approach more general in that you just make sure that that your oxygen delivery is adequate based on those parameters? We make sure oxygen delivery is adequate based on those. You know, we have urine output and low lactate. I mean, maybe not even urine output, depending on what was going on, but you know, don't have increasing multi-organ failure related to poor oxygen delivery or what we think is poor oxygen delivery, then we just live with it. I think the definition of inadequate support in general is so broad. When you talk about inadequate support on VV, inadequate support on VA, whether it be patient support in the, you know, lactate bucket or whether it be the hypoxic bucket, it's just, it's such a the definition as you know, I know PETA has had a passionate investment in recently is something that I think that is lacking in a huge need and desire that all of us have at the bedside physically. Like we're looking at the patient and we want to be able to say, 
we're okay, but a SAT of 78 or 80 doesn't feel okay sometimes. And so, you know, like being able to be well voiced in this and to be able to use our knowledge in these kind of groups of, of um, educational platforms to say, okay, we are doing it okay. This is an ex- acceptable way to, to walk away right now. There's just a, a little um, question and a discussion in the chat about um, SAFE has asked about whether addition of inotropes would help, but, but Ariane actually mentioned beta blockers, why you might give beta blockers in these patients. Because you have a disbalance be- between the metabolic uh, demand and um, and what you can give with the ECMO uh, support, and a typical uh, patient is a patient who is developing a sepsis with uh, increased cardiac output, and so you still give the same ECMO flow for a patient with a very uh, a higher cardiac output. So if the lungs are still very uh, sick. You don't give enough. You you don't give enough uh, saturated blood uh, compared to the full cardiac output of the patient. So one thing to do is to treat the infection and to treat the sepsis. And sometimes with good results, we give beta blockers because you you decrease the the, the metabolic demand and you decrease a little bit cardiac output. If you have hypoxemia on a VV ECMO, you can start uh, increasing ECMO flow. The problem is that. Most of the time you are you have a maximum of flow that's possible with the cannulas in place of the patients and you it's not very easy to change uh, cannulas uh, in such situations to, to to put bigger cannulas so you are you have to do it with your maximal flow you can uh, have on your ECMO and so if the cardiac output of the patient is increasing you have more mixing of blood, you, you, your your ECMO support is insufficient. And when you give beta blockers, you decrease the demand. You can also give sedation and paralysis, but if it's enough, you can give beta blockers because you, you decrease cardiac output and then you can ameliorate the, the balance between the demand of the patient because that is that you are decreasing and what you can give uh, on ECMO flow, on, on your ECMO. Yep. So yeah, so you're saying there are two things. One, you could increase the uh, decrease the demand, and the other, decrease the amount of, of blue blood that the patient is making by right heart ejection through yeah. sick lungs. And do you tend to use short acting like esmolol or something like that? Esmolol. That be your, yeah, beta blocker of choice. Yeah. Cool. All right. So um, I just noticed we've got about three minutes to go, and apparently I'm meant to do the final little wrap up bit. So is there any other any other uh, burning comments or questions before we wrap up? This has been fantastic, by the way. I see everyone's smiling. I'm smiling. Yes, thank you all to our panelists. So thanks for having us. Yes, thank you to invite us. It's so fun to learn from each other. I always love chatting with you guys. It's really great to uh, to have you all here today. Thank you. Thank you to. All of my panelists, thank you, especially to, you know, Elise and Deanna, who did a lot of the work in the background to put this together. Thanks to everyone for joining us. It was really fun. I, re- I really enjoyed it. And this concludes our special collaborative webinar between PDECMO, PCIS, and Pediatric Intensiva. Thank you again to our panelists, Drs. Jamie Furlong-Dillard, Arian Willems, Peter Alexander, and Caroline Osment. And especially thank you to my co-host from the Pediatric Intensiva podcast, Dr. Greg Kelly, as well as Dr. Elise Zivik from the PDECMO Education Committee. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.